All right, my friends, thanks for tuning into the podcast, where, as always, we'll discuss the professional literature and the evidence-based protocol as they relate to the effective treatment of clinically significant anxiety symptoms. I'm Chris Lines, licensed psychotherapist and OCD spectrum disorders treatment specialist, and this, well, this is OCD Straight Talk. This podcast is made possible by NoCD. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient OCD therapy. NoCD therapists are trained in exposure and response prevention, or ERP therapy, the gold standard treatment for OCD. With NoCD, you can do virtual, live face-to-face video sessions with one of their licensed, specialty-trained therapists, and they accept most major insurance plans. To find out more about NoCD, visit nocd.com. That's nocd.com to book a free 15-minute call. For people in the state of Kentucky, you can go to kentuckyocd.com. That's K-E-N-T-U-C-K-Y-O-C-D.com and book a session with me. To my mind, the question that's on everybody's mind uh, at a juncture like this is, well, well, what the hell am I supposed to do with my thoughts then? You know, because everyone sort of intuits and and reflexively engages compulsions as these responses that make sense in light of anxiety and the intrusive thoughts that cause it. And we understand, I think, to a certain extent, the anatomy of the symptoms and realize, again, to a certain degree, how they function, that thoughts elicit uh, feelings uh, that, for example, I'm dirty and I'm going to get sick might elicit the feeling of, of anxiety and that thoughts and feelings shape behavioral choices, like, for example, washing my hands or hand sanitizing or engaging uh, practices that involve avoiding touching dirty surfaces to begin with, and that behavioral choices over time become patterns or habits and that those patterns then Uh, and in turn reinforce the way that we're thinking and feeling in these kinds of situations. Like, I think that people intuit that people understand that maybe they don't quite put it in those kinds of words or, or think to articulate the idea in that way. But I, I, I don't think that like when you hear me say it, you're like, well, shit, I never thought of it like that. I mean, I think most people get it, but what most people aren't thinking is, well, let me stop washing my hands then. Or, you know, let me not hand sanitize. Let me throw that shit out. I don't need that. Like nobody's thinking that at least no one who has not been to to treatment, right, is thinking that everybody's thinking like invest in that shit. Let me get some more of it. You know, let me get some more soap. Let me get some high grade shit. You know, let let me you know what I'm saying? Like, that's what people are thinking. Let me let me spend more time and energy doing compulsions because those things seem to help me to feel better. You know, it, it's just not what people are thinking. So when you tune into OCD Straight Talk and you're like hearing this idea of stopping compulsions, not just routinely, but then in the series, you're very much understanding the rationale behind that clinical directive. Like you come to this this juncture in the series and you hear, well, you got to look for pillar four and stop pillar five compulsions. You, you, and they got to do that stuff. That's very, very important. There's 60 years or very close to it 
of research that supports this, that shows that it's effective. You know, so like you, you come to a place where you hear it and the question that's lingering in the background or maybe in the foreground is, well, what the hell am I supposed to do with the thoughts in the meantime? Like, what do you suggest there, man? That, that I just, that I just let them, let them hang out. Like that, you know, like, and what about the anxiety? Like you're an anxiety therapist. What are you suggesting I do? with my anxiety, you know? And so I think that when, when we come to a point like this, even before we get into stop compulsions and because like in some way, what's lingering in the air after the last episode, you know, we talked about uncertainty and then we sort of doubled down on it again, lingering in the background is like, well, what am I supposed to do with my thoughts? And, and I think it's tough on like a podcast like this to, to answer that question in part because like if you're not giving people these like marvelous tools and and all of these uh, uh, surprising and and insightful answers, well then they're gonna stop tuning into the podcast, you know. And you're kind of like, well, shit, dude. But at the same time, there is this balance. There's a certain degree to which the most informed, thoughtful, tested answer to that question is the one you don't want to hear. It's the one you're running from, right? So what am I supposed to do with my thoughts? What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do with the anxiety that they cause? Mr. Anxiety Treatment Specialist, like, what What do you suggest, man? Well, what am I supposed to do? You know, and it's like, well, if you think about it, if you just think about it for a second and you go over to Pillar 5 and, and if you've been a member of the audience for a little while, then you're informed as to the answer to the definition of compulsion. Like, what is it? You know that it's a somewhat repetitive behavior that you're doing for the purpose of trying to, like, prevent or or diminish, manage your anxiety or disprove or prevent or diminish your intrusive thoughts, as long as that behavior is not connected in a meaningful way to the mitigation of, of like real and immediately present danger. So if the behavior that we're talking about, whatever that is, fits into that pretty broad definition, then the research would suggest that behavior is a very large part of your problem. So very often people are tuning into the, to a podcast like this and, and they're, you know, and they're thinking to themselves like, well, what's he going to say today that's going to make me feel better? What's he going to say today that's, that's going to change my thoughts, you know, and, and I think that there's a certain degree to which you need to be able to tolerate the intrusive thoughts. Like that's one of those words that people in the anxiety community do not like to hear. There's nothing magical. There's nothing special. There's nothing fun and Wow, I never thought of it that way. You know, there's there's nothing cool about tolerate your anxiety. Tolerate the intrusive thoughts that cause it. Just to sort of like sit there and put up with it. You know, and, and a lot of people will hear the phrase, sit with it. But the, the funny thing is different people hear that in different ways and they do different things with it. You know, but the idea connotes nothing. The idea sitting with it. It suggests that you're not doing anything to combat it. You're not doing anything to try and disprove it or prevent it or even get rid of it when it happens, right? It's like you're just tolerating it. 
You're just allowing it to be there. You're allowing it to be part of your present moment and maybe even your future moments, right? I'm not doing anything about it. And the truth of the matter is like the more you're able to do that, you know, and again, there's, there's, there, I, I admit there's nothing like sparkly and fresh and fun and new about that. That's not what people want to hear. That's not what they tune into a podcast like OCD straight talk to hear. Like I, I know that I, I'm plenty aware of that. I, I do OCD work all day, every day. I'm plenty aware that people generally don't like to hear, well, you know, just do nothing about the intrusive thoughts and the anxiety that they cause. Yeah, man, that's a, that's a, that's a good response. But the truth of the matter is if you're, if, if you're reading the literature, like if you're up to date on uh, the studies that have come out uh, over the last nearly six decades, they all pretty much unanimously are saying the same thing or something very, very close to it. Maybe there's a little bit of variation here and there in the 1980s and, and, uh, and then a, a bit before that. But like for the most part, even that stuff is saying the same thing that, that they're talking about identifying the compulsions as the problem. They're not saying the anxiety that you're experiencing is the problem. Like you're saying that you're saying the thoughts are the problem. And I'm not meaning to be insensitive to you. As many of you know, I, I deal with OCD too. And like, I wouldn't necessarily want somebody coming along saying like, you're saying your, your thoughts are a problem, but nobody else is saying that. You know, it's like, well, fuck you, man. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't want to have, I don't want to have this shit going on in my head. I don't want to feel like this as I'm trying to function throughout the day and in high demand situations. And I've got all these thoughts that are bothering me and the anxiety that's like, like digging at me and, and, you know, and, and gnawing, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't, I don't want to have to deal with that. Uh, but the truth of the matter is the literature, the outcome data actually points not to the thoughts and the feelings as the problem. Yeah. I say that's a problem. I say, I don't want to have to deal with that, but but the studies actually show, no, it's the behaviors. It's these responses, whether they're subtle and they're longstanding and habitual, and I don't even see them anymore, or these are like obvious, uh, time-consuming, stereotypic kinds of quote-unquote compulsive responses, like however they appear, or in some cases, I suppose you might say don't appear, uh, if they're fitting into that definition, the, the, studies is, the studies are saying like, that's the problem. That is your problem. Your problem is the response and the outcome data is saying what it's saying because when people work to stop acting like they're anxious, uh, over time, they, if I can use this word very loosely, they stop feeling anxious. Uh, and again, hear me, uh, there's nobody walking around, or at least nobody healthy who has no anxiety ever about anything. Like, so we're not talking about literally zero anxiety, but we're talking comparatively very little. It's healthy anxiety. It, it increases your adaptability, uh, your functionality. It doesn't take away from it. You, you follow it's It's there, the anxiety, but it's not impacting the, the life that you're trying to live on a daily basis. Anyways, the point is that when you stop, if I could say it this way, obsessing about getting rid of your anxiety, when you stop like focusing all of your resources and your time on trying to prevent those thoughts from coming back, just hear me that much, hear me that much. The more you're placing attention and energy and time uh, on trying to manage that stuff and get rid of that stuff and check to see if it's still here now and if it's happening again, if it's any better than it was before, 
You know, like a lot of people are going to say, well, I know that I'm doing the right stuff when my anxiety's better. And, and I think that, well, when you look at it from that point of view, I'm not sure, man, you're, you're flirting with, with compulsive behavior. I, I wouldn't say, you know, something is, is good when the anxiety's lower. I would say, you know, you're doing something good when you're tolerating, when you're tolerating the anxiety. And what that means, tolerating means the, the, the other way of saying tolerance is I'm not doing anything about it. And so if you're not doing anything about it, like nothing, if you're just tolerating it, you're allowing it to be there. Like if that's you, I would say you're doing good work. That's good work, right? And, and the literature would applaud you. And, and the research would say, that's, that's right. That's right. But if, if you're constantly checking, well, I don't think I'm doing compulsions to my anxiety better. I don't think I'm doing compulsions to my anxiety better. That checking, that subtle checking that you're doing is part of the compulsive pattern. Like you, you got to stop doing that. And I think it's at this point where pillar four really comes in because it, cause it's like pillar four says, look for compulsions, look for them, look for them. And what most people are going to do is they're going to put one compulsion down and pick another one up, but they're not going to realize that they picked another one up until, well, I don't know, I guess many of them are not going to realize they picked another one up. You know, maybe somebody like myself comes along and says, oh, that's a compulsion for you. Or you stop doing that one, but it looks like you're doing that this one over here. A lot of people are not going to notice that they simply jump from one lily pad to another one, right? They're going to jump off the one lily pad and think progress, but they're not necessarily going to conceptualize that, well, I'm not in the drink because I jumped on another lily pad. My anxiety is, you know, tolerable because, uh, well, I'm doing this thing. They're not even thinking about this thing that I'm doing. Most people don't recognize that they put one down and pick another one up. Or, or they put two or three down, but they still are picking up other subtle behaviors. And that's where pillar four comes in and says, let's be looking for, let's be actively looking for compulsions. And for, for individuals in treatment, I have them complete a form that I've written called the compulsion decision tree. And the compulsion decision tree is designed to help patients, uh, make a determination. Is this behavior compulsive? Uh, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I don't know. I'm not sure. So we, we go to the compulsion decision tree and, and we sort of ask the form and the form walks us through those definitional yes or no questions and, and spits out an answer at the end. Yes or no. And, uh, but I mean, I always tell patients like, because there wasn't always a compulsion decision tree, you know, I mean, many, many, many hundreds of patients I provided services for, um, before this thing ever came along. Right. And, and I would always tell patients, it's like, well, here's the definition of compulsion, right? If, if you think that behavior meets the broad definition of compulsion, then let's stop that behavior. Let's identify that behavior is the problem. That behavior is my problem. And I've got to get rid of that behavior. Uh, and then I'll, and, and I'll often say, if you're not sure, if you're, eh, I'm not really sure if it meets the definition or not. This isn't something I do every day. Work on OCD. I'm just not sure. Uh, but if you think it might be, if you think it might be a compulsion, then let's treat it like it is. Treat it like it is. Because it's like, and I've told you before in the podcast, it's like, what do you have to lose by treating a behavior that might be a compulsion like it is a compulsion. What do you have to lose? Uh, as opposed to just 
because the reality is one of two things is going to happen here over time. Either you're going to over time eventually realize that that behavior wasn't compulsive to begin with, in which case, what have you lost? You've just sort of exercised some discipline of I'm not going to engage or exhibit this behavior. And then eventually you sort of stumble upon the realization that it was, it was actually always okay for me to do that. And then you take it back up again. But the alternative is you sort of like uh, uh, exhibit the behavior with liberality and is, oh, sure, man, just do it. Just do it. You know, it might be compulsive, but I don't think so. You know, and then w- what happens, uh, you know, a month or two or three go by. And what happens is eventually you, you realize that that behavior has been compulsive for me all along. Now, now what have you lost? Now you realize I, I've spent all this time trying to get rid of my anxiety and, and my OCD has continued just the same to, to occupy my life and to take more and more of my functioning from me while I've sort of hidden my head in the sand thinking there's nothing wrong with this behavior. It's like bullshit, man. Bullshit. Don't lie to yourself. Don't lie to yourself. If you think that behavior could be, it might be a compulsion, then treat it like it is. Treat it like it is. I mean, so I, I think that that's an important piece of things. And, and it's like here we could be talking about the subtypes and giving you some specific examples. And, and that's what I've done over the last several episodes. I've given you some subtype examples. And I think that that's meaningful and I think that it's helpful and, and I think that it's interesting and all those things. When it comes, though, to identifying compulsions, there are such things as like frequent flyer compulsions. If you take, for example, contamination OCD, which I mentioned earlier in the episode. Yeah, I mean, most contamination OCDers are are hand washing, hand sanitizing, avoiding touching things to the best of their ability. And maybe that involves having other people touch them for them uh, and ruminating on what they've touched. Like most of them are doing all of those compulsions, if not three out of four. Uh, And you can take that for like the sexually taboo fears. You can take that for illness, anxiety disorder. You can take that for real event OCD, uh, you know, and on and on the list goes. There's all of the subtypes seem to have frequent flyer compulsions and that's fine. But to my mind, that's not really the point because for most of those individuals, they already know that they don't need to go scratching and searching for the the stereotypic uh, time consuming, obvious compulsions. Again, they already know those. The ones that they don't know are these sort of, uh, you might call them micro compulsions, these idiosyncratic specific to them, hidden, habitual, long-standing behaviors that they engage to express their anxiety or to manage their anxiety. Little things that somebody who's expert in the area might notice, but, but some of them are not even visible. Like when somebody's gritting their teeth, that might not necessarily even be visible to another person, even somebody who's looking for it. You know, so like when you're talking about looking for compulsions, it doesn't really do a whole lot of good to say, well, let, let's go through some subtypes here. Again, that stuff can be interesting and I'm not saying otherwise, but it's not necessarily helpful to you. Again, it goes back to that idea that like the most obvious answer, the one that maybe you don't necessarily gravitate to wanting to begin with is the best one, which is you just got to roll up your sleeves, put on your spectacles and fucking look for them, look for them. Right. And, and, and discipline yourself to not just do it like, well, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it for the next couple of minutes. I'll do it. It's like, no, come on, man. Be about the business of looking, look, search, look for them, look hard for them, look for a long time for them. Observe yourself in different settings, work to identify these quote unquote compulsive responses and recognizing that 
some of them, maybe even many of them, might be outside of what you conceptualize as compulsive. You know, they might fall beyond your stereotypes and make room for that in your own thinking. I think that it's true. It's true, man, that, that the reality is for a lot of individuals with anxiety systems and OCD, some of the behaviors they're engaging to express and to manage, to try and prevent the way that they're feeling, they're not thinking about these behaviors as part of the system itself. They're most certainly not thinking about these behaviors as problems. If anything, they're, they're happy to see these behaviors. They can't wait to get to do them because, you know, they associate doing these behaviors with feeling better, even if feeling better for only a moment or two, kind of like scratching that mosquito bite. Like it feels uh, better when I scratch it. So, you know, it's kind of counterintuitive to say, don't do that. Well, I mean, it, it seems like, you know, so for a, a lot of people, you're going to have to to look and to look for, for a while, discipline yourself to look and, and keep track, keep record of what you're doing. And then when, when you identify what you've done in the past, look for that in the future, kind of like baseball players will watch pitcher videos. They sort of anticipate what pitches one, two, and three are going to be, right? Because this is often what it is. 73.5% of the time, this is the order of the pitches. So just anticipate that's probably what I'm going to get when I go to bat. Same idea here, you know, I'm probably going to find these compulsions going on. Even if I'm not thinking about doing them, I'll probably find that they're happening. So like you need to be about the business of looking for them, looking for them in order to find them. You're not going to stop a compulsion if you're not identifying it as such. Well, that's it for another episode of OCD Straight Talk. Feel free to reach out with any questions you might have to chrislines04 at gmail.com. If you found the podcast helpful, consider giving it a five-star rating or subscribing to OCD Straight Talk for structured help with your anxiety or OCD symptoms.